You're listening to the CapEx Big Question podcast, where we're joined by other investors, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs discussing global game-changing trends and burning topics that keep investors up at night, one question at a time. Hello, and welcome to this special episode of the CapEx podcast. For regular listeners who are at this point wondering, what's happened to Chris's voice? Let me just assure you that this is not Chris. My name is Lucas. I work with Chris deep in the bunker of the Capitalist Exploits headquarters, and I've hijacked the podcast this episode to bring you a special show full of premium content taken from our Insider program. Yes, we thought that it's about time to share some of the highlights over the last year, so this episode we've got some content for you that is taken from the monthly webinars we run for our Insider members. Now, as members will know, this is just one small component of the Insider program, but we had some great questions being answered and the conversational format really comes across better than writing huge lengthy blog posts. So with all that said, sit back, relax, and let's dive straight into these questions posed by current members that Chris has answered. We start the episode with a beauty. What's the process Chris and his team use to identify asymmetric investment opportunities? And how can you tell the difference between a stock that's a great candidate for bankruptcy versus a deep value situation that you should buy? The methodology that I've found quite useful over the last you know, couple of decades is to go, well, my head trader will go and look for the trading patterns in all sorts of sectors pretty much agnostic you know trying not to have a narrative in the back of your head uh, because that can be dangerous and point you in the direction of trying to find a reason to buy any particular sector or company or whatever it is so um, it's useful to not not have that so what he'll do is he'll pull up um, on a constant basis um, stocks that are exhibiting a particular a particular sort of technical um, setup. I, on the other hand, um, am looking at this, the macro. And essentially what we're often look, where where we get comfortable is where the two of those collide. And sometimes they don't, often they don't collide, but sometimes they do. Um, and it kind of clicks and makes sense. And what we've found is that um, it's been quite fascinating. We'll come up with a a bunch of stocks and we'll find that they're all in the same sector. So now we immediately know that there's, this isn't just a company specific problem, right? Because you can have a company that's exhibiting a particular stock chart for any number of reasons. The CEO could have run off with the, you know, accountant's wife or, and it could be all sorts of carry on going on. And it's not necessarily anything that's useful for us from an investment perspective. On the other hand, when you have, dozens of different companies all in one sector that are all exhibiting the same or very similar um, trading patterns, that's a time when you sort of stop and you think, huh, I need to pay attention. I need to wake up and something is going on. What exactly is it? And so for us, it's often a point where we are um, alerted to something that we might not have identified from um, my macro analysis, and that's kind of imp- that's kind of interesting to us. Sometimes we've already got what we believe to be a decent idea as to why that particular sector is doing what it's doing, 
And other times we don't really know. So we're looking, we're going, wow, this looks fascinating. There's something going on. We're maybe 50% um, into what we, you know, we have essentially maybe 50%. We feel like we have like 50% of the answers as to why this is taking place, but we're not 100% certain at all. And so what I like to do with the weekly is to bring these to your attention because it is the formative stages of um, how we go about finding uh, these sort of deep value asymmetric situations. Um, and we are, we, so we, from the technical perspective, we kind of know that there's something going on. Um, sometimes we know a lot more um, based on, again, my microanalysis as to what's taking place in that sector. And it can quickly come together and we, we realize that, um, you know, we've got a trade on our hands and other times it's just a sector that we're watching. And I'll get to that in a minute because there's some other questions that were asked in this, um, in this month. And, and I'll, I'll showcase to you exactly what, I, what I'm talking about. So to answer this particular question with respect to would it be a good strategy to go and buy equal positions, I don't think that would be a bad strategy. Um, but what we have found, and sometimes we'll, we'll show particular companies, which if you look at them from a fundamental perspective today, um, you might look at it and say, oh, that doesn't look that great. Now, bearing in mind, um, we're not showcasing companies that we think are going to go bankrupt. That obviously, we don't, well, we don't do that. But um, markets are forward-looking. And what, what I've learned, one of the you know, hard lessons that I've learned in the years is that you need to try and determine what is actually going to be the case in two, three years or even 12 months' time because then the fundamentals can change very, very um, quickly. quickly. Um, so, you know, what the fundamentals look like today can be quite different to what they look like in six to 12 months time, or certainly in two to three years time. Um, and you could say a lot of that's guesswork. And, um, you know, I wouldn't necessarily disagree with you, but it's a matter of looking at the supply demand fundamentals in that entire sector and saying, hang on, what is going on here? Um, and why might this sector be turning up when it's been decimated and it's down 90%. Um, and so at that time, at that point in time, you can look at companies where, you know, they're kind of limping along, but they're turning up and you, you wonder why that is. So again, when you extrapolate that out and you think, and you figure out what the dynamics in that particular market are, you can often see that in two years time, the, that the change is fairly substantial. And, as a, and then your fundamentals um, are quite different. And typically that's a situation where you have a difference between buying a stock maybe today for $4, um, whereas in two years' time you're buying it at you know, $16. And yet it's, uh, even at $16 it might be down 80%, but it's, but it's down 90% today at four. So um, that's... That's kind of how we look at, look at things and really what that, those five stock recommendations are designed to do. It's our formative stages with respect to where sectors that we're looking at where we see there's something that's really interesting. Sometimes we're already buying into it and obviously you'll get an alert if that's the case and sometimes it's just on our radar and we're figure, trying to figure it out and doing more due diligence. Moving on from the processes Chris and his team here go through for any recommendations, Let's go to this great question posed by a member about the wider hedge fund industry itself, and specifically the shift investors have been making from active to passive strategies. 
Should the record closures of hedge funds over the last few years be ringing alarm bells? Or is the money management industry just going through a phase of survival of the fittest? Here's Chris with the answer. It's interesting. Very, very good question. And there's actually a lot of things in my, spinning around in my head when I'm looking at this space. The active managers, they've been um, closing up shop. I mean, this is going to be one of the worst years, but they've been doing this for you know the last, certainly the last three, four years. And when I look at what is working and where the capital is flowing to, cap, the, the capital flows have been phenomenal into passive strategies. Now, one of the best strategies over the, essentially since QE came out and since post GFC, one of the best strategies, if you wanted to make money, has essentially been selling vol. So, um, and that's essentially what a lot of the passive, um, it's indexing um, low vol ETFs. I've written about a bunch. Uh, you can go and Google on the, on my site and you can pull up some of the articles I've written about it. But those strategies have been performing really, really well. Um, and volatility has just been crushed. It's gone down and down and down and down. Um, and a large part portion or a large blame can be placed on the central bankers and their desires to, um, to suppress rates. Um, and the suppression of rates has created a, an environment where vol is, is always falling. And it's an unusual environment. It's not normal um, where you, if you would have market forces acting on their own without respect to intervention from um, governments, it's, it's not normal. In that environment, if you're an active fund manager and you're going after um, uh, you know, shall we say normal strategies that have worked pre-GFC, you've just you've had a really, really tough time. And the other thing that has taken place, and I've seen this a lot, is those many of those active fund managers have completely changed their strategies and they've essentially gone um, into and doing the same thing that the passive strategies are doing. And they're doing it for survival because on a quarterly basis, you got to report to your LPs and your LPs turn around and go, Hey, Chris, you're doing shit. What are you, you know, why should I invest with you? I'm pulling my money out. And so unless you've got permanent capital or trusted capital, um, after, you know, one quarter where you've not beaten a benchmark, um, they pull their funds. And this has been happening to some of the smartest, best investment managers out there. So what I believe is, you know, you ask the question, is this raising alarm bells? Hell yes. Um, when the when that coordination on central bankers goes away, and I've been making the case that this is going to take place for political reasons, geopolitical reasons, um, that environment changes really quickly. So, um, and... You know, if you look at these strategies, they work really, really well until they don't work. And when I'm saying they, those that passive, essentially vol selling. Um, and, you know, you need, you need only look at one of the, he's kind of a legend in the space, is Victor Naderhofer, who used to work with George Soros. Um, and he's written a bunch of books. I've got them sitting in, in my office here. And you can go and have a read through those. And essentially, that's what he did was he would pick, he would sell vol and he'd do it on leverage and he made millions and millions of dollars 
until he didn't. And Vic blew himself up, I think, three times, certainly twice. Spectacular blow-ups. Hundreds of millions of dollars just vaporized because you go through this period where you're flipping the ticket um, on leverage consistently, you know, and, and human beings love consistency. I mean, it's the same reason that Bernie Madoff managed to do what he did because he promised these consistent returns and everybody was like, wow, that's fantastic. You're just literally printing money for me every single month, quarter, year. Of course, his was a fraud, but, and what Vic Neidhofer was doing wasn't a fraud, but the markets are, you know, the more they, um, the more vol falls um, and is low, the greater the risk that, it's, that when it turns, it's like I call it spring. And that's essentially why he continuously blew himself up. Um, what's kind of fascinating to me is just that he managed to go back out and raise hundreds of millions of dollars again, even after he'd blown people up. Um, but that's just another question for another day. So, yes, it does bring up um, alarm bells. I think right now, if you, if you for the next 10 years, essentially went, um, you know, sold, if you wanted to do like a pair trade and sold the passive strategies, and especially vol, low vol strategies, and basically went out and bought, like if you're an accredited investor, and went and invested in some of your top alpha performing funds, um, I think it'd do well over the next decade because I think that that period of time is coming, has come to an end for all the geopolitical reasons that I've discussed before. So some interesting thoughts there on the hedge fund industry and what's going to happen in that space over the next few years. And speaking of the near future, let's move to this classic question from a member asking Chris what he sees as the biggest market risk right now. Right. Biggest market risk. I think that's, you know, um, fairly evident right now. It's the bond market. People talk about the equity market being the biggest risk. I think we can have a recession, certainly in the US, and that could be a 10, 20, heck, it could even be a 30% correction. Um, But if you look at asset allocations around the world, it's absolutely plain to me that, the bubble is in the sovereign debt markets. So that is the biggest risk. It's risks I've talked about before. I think there are a multitude of different reasons why, whereby that is ending. Um, it's political fragmentation. Um, it's just pure mathematics of this stuff, which is, but that's been the case for, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. And anybody making that argument has actually been wrong dead wrong um and so i'm quite lucky that we've sort of held off and the the flipping point in um, in our belief is that it's it's actually one of political change which um which changes all of the um central bank policies and so on and so forth and i've spoken about this before but i think that's the biggest market risk um is the debt markets and then really what you've got to look at, look at is the knock-on effects of that. You know, what happens with higher interest rates, um, with inflation, which has been something that people have not been accounting for for a long time now, and it's, um, it's completely out of the modern lexicon. Um, so I think that's the biggest market risk. Yes, no surprises there to anyone familiar with the blog or our thoughts on the bond market. The next question is on the topic of managing your cash allocation in your portfolio. And it stems from the idea that a lot of investors don't really give enough thought to the cash they're holding in their portfolio, electing to go with their local currency by default. 
Specifically, this member wanted to know Chris's thoughts on which currencies to allocate the cash portion of your portfolio to. Again, I'm back to being a dollar bull. Um, I think that the, the dollar's relatively undervalued right now. Um, and, you know, I get it. Massive debts, end, end of an empire, all that kind of stuff. Um, but you've got to look across. You know, it's dangerous just to look at it in isolation at one country, one currency, one equity. Um, when I look at the world as a whole um, and general capital flows, really there are only three major um, currency pairs that matter because of the liquidity available, and that's the dollar, euro, yen. And in that particular world, um, I'm a dollar bull. Um, I think that Europe's got a lot of problems coming. I think the inflation prints coming out now, and I mentioned this the other day, um, they're coming in higher and higher. That's going to eventually cause problems there. Um, not to mention all of the um, the insanity with respect to the EU. Um, they're importing low-skilled, um, I wouldn't even say labour, it's not even labour, um, from war zones. Um, and, you know, uh, some people say, oh, that's a racist view. Forget about it. There's no... Um, I've lived in Africa, and um, you cannot you cannot equate um, the skill sets that exist there with uh, with those that Europe actually needs. Um, and you've got uh, they've got some serious problems there. So that's um, uh, I think it's you know dollars are what I want to be holding mostly. Um, you can diversify across a bunch of other things. I think long-term, Asia is the place to be. I think the Asian currencies are going to do well. I think Asian general is going to do well. Um, and uh, and I will be focusing on that. I think at some point the renminbi is going to be a spectacular buy. Um, I would love to see China have a, you know, really serious correction in equities and debt um, and... Uh, and if we see that, then I think um, we're going to have a spectacular buying opportunity. So it seems the good old USD and Asian currencies longer term win Chris's vote as the best place to allocate the cash portion of your portfolio to. But how about the oldest form of currency, gold? How would Chris view this? And what role does he see the yellow metal playing in a portfolio? We've been looking at the gold sector for ages. Um, I'm not a gold bug. I'm... I think that societies go through periods where they choose particular monies and so on and so forth. And we can easily make the argument that for thousands of years, gold has been used as a money. Um, and, you know, are you willing to bet that we're at a point where gold loses its value? That's a pretty ballsy call. It's not one I'm prepared to make. That being said, I don't really view it as anything other than another asset class. Um, it's also very difficult to move around. I mean, in the day and age that we have today, it's um, it's it's a difficult thing to move around. Also, we've been through a fairly long period of time where gold hasn't been viewed or even treated as money. And certainly if you look, anyone up to the age of 30 these days um, just doesn't, doesn't have an interest in gold and doesn't treat it as anything of value. Um, whether that changes or not, I don't know. What I do know is that when I certainly want to have a, a percentage of my capital in physical um, and 
and I think that's important is if, if you want to own gold is to own it physically um, and don't own gold stocks is not the same thing. So where we highlighted gold stocks last, last week, that again, it's like suddenly you're looking at this entire sector where it's been smashed. It looks like it's wanting to move up. Um, I think it's maybe a little bit early, uh, but it's one that we're looking at from the, the stock sector perspective. Um, but, you know, I think, I think everybody should have a certain percentage of gold as a portfolio hedge, quite um, frankly. Now, from the oldest form of money to what many consider is the newest form, we couldn't leave out cryptocurrency from this special episode, given that every man and his dog's talking about it. The next question Chris answers is a great one and gets to the heart of understanding cryptocurrency and Bitcoin as a new phenomenon. The question is, why does Chris feel that Bitcoin's implementation of the blockchain will necessarily win? And the crux of this question is, why Bitcoin and not some other cryptocurrency further on down the line, or one that exists today? Here's Chris with some insight. Now, Pareto's law exists. There is evidence across nature, across markets, that um, this will be consistent. Um, Pareto's principle, which is commonly known as the 80-20 principle. Now, currently, Bitcoin inhabits that space of being um, the leader. So it's true that that may not always be the case, but as long as it is the case, and as long as you mark, you're watching um, that particular space to see whether the incumbent is going to get upturned or not, um, it's the best data that we've got to go on. And I'll make the reference to, in that space, the, the next contender after Bitcoin is Ethereum. But this is all about computing power. And Bitcoin, at present, has a 100,000 times more, I'll repeat that, a 100,000 times more computing power going into it than, than Ethereum, which is the next best contender. And then there's a whole you know, bunch of them sitting wallowing below that. That is a phenomenal advantage. Does that stay that way? We don't know, but certainly that's what the data is that we have to go on right now. So the other thing that needs to be understood is that Bitcoin, the currency and the Bitcoin blockchain are inseparable. You know, I've, there was a comment on Twitter the other day about somebody saying, oh, I like Bitcoin. You know, Bitcoin, the currency is really great, but the blockchain is useless. And at the same time, I've heard, you know, similarly ill-thought comments around, uh, you know, blockchain is, the Bitcoin blockchain is useful, but the currency is worthless, uh, which is just, it's naive thinking because it doesn't go to the heart of what the technology actually is. The two are inseparable. You cannot have the Bitcoin blockchain without the Bitcoin currency. Um, they, if you take away the incentive motivations behind the actual currency and the mining operations and so on and so forth, you don't have a blockchain uh, or you don't have a Bitcoin blockchain. And so um, the two are inseparable. As long as they're inseparable, um, they will be interconnected. And the use of the Bitcoin blockchain um, is what I'm interested in. As long as the use case scenarios and those that are being implemented and used on a daily basis continue to grow as they are, then the Bitcoin currency that is attached to it um, will continue to have 
increasing value. Now, um, at the moment, we have this plethora of other currencies, um, old currencies, and not just old currencies, but tokens and crypt and uh, what are called ICOs, which are initial coin offerings. They're all three different segments. So you've got old currencies, you've got initial coin offerings um, and tokens, different things, but they've largely been lumped together. And um, there's certainly a lot of evidence that the participants in those markets don't understand what it is that they're participating in. And it certainly looks like a bubble. Um, in those spaces. I kind of think that we're in a similar phase to that, which was uh, the internet was in the sort of 96, where um, it was, you know, pre-massive blow-off. Um, but at the end of the day, the internet survived. It still exists. It, it didn't go away. Um, all of these other trivial pieces that sat on top of it in the dot-com boom blew away. And I think we're going to have the same event taking place in the ICO market. I think 90, probably 99% of these coin offerings um, are going to be found to be worthless. And people are treating them at the moment, much like an equity, like you would buy into a, a startup company, um, expecting that you have an equity ownership. And if you actually go and you look at the white papers on many of these things, that's not at all what you're buying. Yet people are saying that that's what they're buying them for. So that's a problem. Um, and it's a problem that can only be resolved in pain. So this is all very good. I think this is a wonderful setup because it actually allows for these um, geeks, if you will, that are sitting in the, in the you know, back room eating their Cheetos and drinking the Red Bull to build out a lot of this infrastructure. And they can do it because money is being thrown at them. And that's a wonderful situation because it allows for them to to play and to test and break things um, with almost no consequence to, you know, the consequences that most of us have um, in our businesses, you know, um, in this business that I'm running here. If I provide shitty, worthless information, um, eventually the, the business will go away. The, the, the dynamics of the marketplace exist and um, but if I had this massive groundswell of uh, people that for whatever reason decided that Insider was a fantastic product and they sent me millions and millions of dollars, um, I could play around with that and I could do all sorts of things. Now, that's really where the marketplace is at right now, I believe. And I say that this is a good thing because it, it lands up building the infrastructure for what comes tomorrow. And I think what comes tomorrow is a completely different financial infrastructure which incorporates ICOs and token offerings and all these sorts of different things. Um, but there's a phase that we need to go through before we come out of that. And, and I, I th again, I think that I'll give you a quick analogy. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I, I think it's important to cover it. If we go back to the reason that I can communicate with you today on this platform, which is called Zoom, but there's dozens other, there's Skype and there's, you know, um, Twitter, and there's just you know, all of these various applications, we can communicate on in all sorts of different shapes and forms at a cost approaching zero. The reason that we can do that is actually because of the dot-com boom. That boom allowed for infrastructure to be laid at 
And that infrastructure which was laid was laid whereby the returns to those who were paying for it um, were never actually justifiable. So the fiber optic cable, for example, that was laid undersea um, was not economical. And the people that paid for it, buying into companies like Cisco and so on and so forth, um, lost their money. But the people who picked up the, that infrastructure picked it up for cents on the dollar. So their cost basis to then provide services on top of it were completely different. They were basically, um, they didn't have to bring in the metrics of the hardcore infrastructure that was laid. Um, they could work off of um, greatly reduced operating uh, costs and so on and so forth. And actually, I was talking to a good friend about this uh, just day before yesterday, I think it was, with regards to the channel. And you go back to the channel, which is the underground um, rail network between London and France. And I was actually in London at the time that they were building it. So it's fascinating to me. I was very young and so I didn't fully understand. I actually thought it would be a good investment. And as I watched it progress, I, you know, I learned a very good lesson, uh, which is, you know, quite frankly, a lesson why I do not like to invest in early stage infrastructure ever. It's almost always a terrible investment. So the costs to actually building that thing were phenomenal. The people who financed it um, were never going to make their money back, and they didn't, and they lost their shirts. Um, and then in the debt write-downs, the next tranche of capital that came in and bought up the defaulted debt actually lost their shirts as well. And it was only like the third tranche of capital that came in and picked it up for cents on the dollar that can actually make it viable. So the same was true of the dot-com boom, and I think that we're going to have the same being true of this financial infrastructure that's currently being built, Bitcoin being at, this, at the top of it. Um, and that will mean that there's probably going to be a lot of pain coming. So one of the critical questions I guess you're going to ask yourself with respect to Bitcoin, if you're holding Bitcoin as this um, currency and for, for profit, obviously, and I mentioned this in the report before, you need to be aware and be capable of losing at least 50% of your value in that. Um, the reason that I won't sell it is partly position sizing and partly for the fact that if it is to be the leader coming out of the, um, the ashes of what I think is going to take place, um, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter because the value of it could easily be 10, 20, 50, $100,000. And so that gives me asymmetric reward potential. If, I bought, if, if I'm holding it today at $2,500 and it goes back to $1,000, I'm not going to care provided that the, all the metrics, all the use cases continue to, to function. And I might have to wait five, 10 years for that. And then I'm okay with that because um, if that does take place and it does land up being the leader in, the, in that particular area, um, it's going to be worth a phenomenal amount of money. That was Chris with his thoughts on why, at this stage, Bitcoin is likely to prevail as the leading blockchain and cryptocurrency. Members have also been keen to know more about Chris's background, given the capitalist exploits inside of provide such a wide array of sectors and trades. Here's Chris responding to a member's question about what he specializes in. What I've found I've been good at is identifying big trends. And, and the cool thing with trends is that you know, if you get, the, get on the back of a trend, you can, you can cock up and still make money. Um, 
because it's, you know, it's the old rising tide lifts all boats analogy. Um, so for me, that's kind of more important than, um, well, again, you know, you, you go after what you, um, what you're good at your own, you know, little niche, if you will. And so the train side of things is, is, if I was going to identify anything and the way that I've executed on that has been many, many different um, ways of, um, you know, run businesses, for example, um, where I've gone out and I've, I've bought assets and um, done particular things where I felt that that trend has been um, my friend with respect to just trading stocks and equities and bonds and things of that nature. Um, you know, I, I'm, my speciality isn't in actually stock picking, um, which is why I you know, get a team of people who can help me on that. Um, it's more around trying to understand, you know, behavioral psychology and how capital shifts around the world and why. So there you go. The trend is Chris's friend. Now, lots of members with us ask the question, how should I build a portfolio for the next 20 or 30 years? In this world of constant information bombardment and investors expecting quicker and quicker returns, what's Chris's view on positioning for the longer term where the big money is to be made? Here he is again with some great thoughts on portfolio structuring for the longer term. And this one comes with some names we've had to keep confidential in case you hear any glitches. I, I try as best as I can to look for major trends which have got longevity to them. Uh, we're not day trading here. So you know, none of, almost none of these uh, trades that I'm putting in front of you are ones whereby if you bought them today or you bought them tomorrow or next week, it's going to make any meaningful difference across the timeframes that we're looking to hold these things. We're looking for massive returns over an extended timeframe where we can get in as cheap as we can into unfolding trends and, and make massive home runs over the next decade. Um, so as a consequence, timing isn't as important um, as, as you might think. And, and quite a good example, so for example, is up um, some 30, 35, 40% in the last few months. Now, that's a, you know, uh, that's a good return. Most people would look at that and say, that's a fantastic return. But over time, what we're looking for is multiples we're looking for you know five ten x returns and so if you bought in um two months ago that could have a significant impact but at the same time um there's not you know timing is very difficult it's, we could buy something which can go down 30 percent and i'd be you should still be very comfortable to own it so long as you know why you're owning it um so position sizing is important um i would say don't you don't necessarily need to rush into anything unless there's a time sensitive type of trade, which we will, uh, we will alert you to the fact. Um, and I will mention that we do our best to time those markets and to look for breakouts. Um, and, and there's many markets that I've got, I've got dozens here that we're looking at, but we haven't taken a position. They look very, very interesting, but we're all, we are waiting um, for, uh, confirmations and for a number of the pieces of the puzzle, if you will, to align for the stars to align for us to be able to mitigate more risk and to um, and to hopefully get in at a more favourable um, price. And speaking about risk, members have also written to us saying, "Yeah, 
we agree with your views and they're very convincing or whatever, but there's also the element of chaos that comes into investing in these asymmetric opportunities. What happens, for example, when a government takes unprecedented action or there's a natural disaster that changes an entire industry or war, or you've simply overlooked something in your thesis that comes back to bite you in the bottom, etc. How does Chris, as an investor, deal with these unknowns? This is a short answer, but a great one. You know, the reason that you position size is for all of the reasons. Um, there's dozens of puzzle pieces and you take a position when sufficient, in your mind, a sufficient number of those puzzle pieces form to present you with an asymmetric opportunity. That doesn't mean that that opportunity is necessarily going to work. Um, it just presents you with a good mathematical probability. And um, by doing, by position sizing accordingly and only taking maybe 5% in each of those types of themes, um, that's how you mitigate some of these risks, which are risks which are unknown. You know, does the does a government come in and do X, Y, Z? Does a war start? You know, these are things which we, we as best as we can, we'll try and identify them, but you can't necessarily, you know, kiss all the girls. And finally, we have one last question, still on the topic of more traditional or boring asset allocation. What does Chris do with the rest of his portfolio that isn't allocated to the recommendations found in the insider portfolio? It's across asset classes. I use a very similar methodology to that, which um, I'm doing for insider in terms of looking where relative value lies. So as a consequence, um, Japanese equities looks uh, quite favorable to me. So I'm overweight on that side of things. I do believe that we, on a geopolitical basis, we are going to um, quite likely see capital moving into the U.S., even though the U.S. is actually far from cheap. Um, one could certainly not make the argument that it's, um, it's a, a, a deep value situation. Um, so I prefer just simply not to be short because there's many, and look, I've got many uh, very smart friends who manage... Um, far more money than I do in the hundreds of millions um, and in the billions who are short the US market. Um, I don't think that I'm not prepared to take that um, avenue when I look at the forest as opposed to the trees. Um, it's, it's a difficult trade for me to, to make to be short the US market. If I look around the world, the, the, the biggest bubble lies in fixed income. Um, it doesn't lie in equities. So in the end, when we look at equity valuations, we need to take into context where capital is sitting um, on a relative basis as well. Because when that capital moves, it has to go somewhere. Um, some of it almost certainly will move into equities. Um, and so it's, I, I think it's a bit dangerous to be short equities. But, you know, where you're looking at boring types of investments, I'm looking at... Um, a healthy mix of solid equities um, globally. I will rebalance. I, I keep it quite boring. Um, I'll rebalance occasionally depending on, on asset moves around the world. But like I said, I'm overweight Japan. Um, we've been somewhat overweight Europe for a while. That's worked out pretty well. Um, increasingly, actually, there was, a, there was a conference just held couple of weeks back, um, which I didn't attend, but a bunch of my buddies did over in Cayman. So we were, it was about 20, 22 people, all um, 
incredible intellectual power in the room. And what was interesting was that everybody was long Euro and long Europe. Um, I think that's got a bit of a trade and, and that's been our positioning, um, as you'd well know, um, for at least a year now. I actually started Insider um, less than a year ago, but that's only been the positioning. So, and again, it's worked out relatively well, but I think there's still more juice in that particular orange. Um, but yeah, it was very fascinating to actually see that, um, you know, there was massive consensus and that, that does worry me a little bit. But, you know, look for, um, look for companies that are not going to go away. Um, look for um, uh, asset classes that essentially are um, mispriced and, again, aren't going to go away. Things like um, commodities, um, maybe not in the, um, some of the metals, which have been really run up, but soft commodities look really interesting. Um, so it's, it's a, it's a long question to answer. Um, but that's how I try and structure my portfolio. And then insider really is designed to be a, a hedge, if you will. So it's a, it's attacking risk. It's attacking and going after, um, sectors and, um, industries, etc., which can benefit from uh, dramatic moves. So that wraps up our special episode. I hope you enjoyed it and got a sense of the wide variety of things members are interested in when it comes to the webinars we provide. And if you'd like to hear more episodes like this, then leave a comment on the blog or write to us to let us know. And of course, this episode wouldn't be complete without a hearty plug for Insider. If you want to get access to the unique opportunities that Chris and the team invest in personally and recommend to our members, then join Insider by going to capitalistexploits.at where you can sign up for a ridiculously fair price and we even offer a 100% refund if you don't like it. How's that? Okay, that's all from me. Thanks for listening. Thanks very much for tuning in. To receive more great subscriber-only information, go to capitalistexploits.at